of you that are headed there, go ahead, if you will, and find your way. I want to take a moment and thank the Lord for my wonderful wife. If you've not met my wife, if you are a guest here today, I want to show you who she is. Would you stand just a minute for me, please? This is Lady Gail. And... Uh, Tomorrow is our 35th wedding anniversary. Yeah, how about that? Tomorrow. You'd think working on me for 35 years, she'd have done a better job, but it had not. Anyway, we're so thankful. I just thank God for her. It's not easy being married to me, for one thing. It's not easy being a pastor's wife. That's a very difficult position, very difficult job. And she is, just absolutely excels at it. She's a wonderful Wonderful woman. I thank God for her. Next to her is our daughter Amy, all the way from the great state of Georgia. And then there's that guy over there, my son-in-law. Uh, my son-in-law Matthew is there too. We love him. Appreciate him so much. Graduate of the University of Georgia, all you Bulldogs. <laughs> You're in the wrong section, brother. Hey, you know, they're a divided house, by the way. I don't know if you knew that or not. She's a gator. This has nothing to do with the message, but... During the Florida-Georgia game, he actually sits on the other side of the stadium. They go... That's true. Anyway, you pray for them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I, I have announced my topic today through the way of an email blast. If you are a guest here today, you may not have received that. I want to speak to you on the subject of the Antichrist today. The Antichrist. And may I say to you, perhaps as a subtitle, we could borrow a simple inscription that you see probably all the time on your rearview mirror. You know that little sign down at the bottom of that mirror that usually says something like, the objects in your mirror are closer than they appear. And so may I use that as a subtitle today because the things we're going to talk about are closer than you might think. And we're going to make some connections. Why discuss the Antichrist when our primary function is to exalt the Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I think it's because when we study prophecy, one of the things that we are encouraged to do is to be mindful that we might be running out of time running out of time as far as witnessing for Christ and doing the things that God has given us to do. One particular preacher was conducting a Bible study and told the people, he said, you know the possibility exists that you would only have four more days of life, what would you do? And one of the ladies in the group said, well, she said, if I knew I was only going to live four more days, she said, I would go to all my community and all my relatives and I'd talk to them about Jesus. And of course the whole group, amen, dad, and then somebody else in the group spoke up and said, if I knew I only had four days, I'd go down to the church every day and I'd find out what I could do to help get the gospel out. Of course, the whole group amen that. Then one of the gentlemen in the back spoke up and said, if I knew I only had four days to live, I'd go to my mother's mother-in-law's house and live with her. And the group just kind of looked at him. He said, those would be the longest days of my life, he said. <laughs> so... Uh, Well, anyway, when it comes to the subject, when it comes to the subject of the Antichrist, there have been numerous candidates presented over the years. Uh, back in the day, Adolf Hitler was thought to be him, and 
More recently, even John F. Kennedy and Henry Kissinger, some of you may remember that. And it seems like every president has somehow or another made, uh, made that list. Barack Obama was no exception, and even George Bush. And somebody's even mentioned to me that uh, President Trump may be. And somebody asked me that. I said, no way. They said, how, are you, how can you be so sure? I said, because the Antichrist is going to be well-liked. So uh, you can mark him off your list. That, that ain't going to happen. He's going to be popular and elected to that position, no doubt, ascending to that position. There's all kinds of, of talk about the Antichrist. You know, is he a Jew or a Gentile? What does the Bible say? Uh, how will he come to be and what is this whole avenue that he might travel through? I've chosen this text, feeling like the Lord led me there, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to talk about a lot of different stuff. If you have a study sheet with you, there are five major things we're going to look at, okay? We're going to go down through there. And in all honesty, it's kind of like putting together a really nice sandwich. I hate to talk about food when it's uh, just before lunch, but... Um, uh, I'm glad you're here. You know that this morning I, I was in my study about five o'clock and I'm going over my notes and I'm thinking to myself, you know, the rain is out there. Boy, you know, this will probably be a day God's people are going to be tempted just to sleep in. And you didn't do that. I'm so proud of you. And I knew we'd have the former Methodists here because they don't mind getting sprinkled, but I didn't know about... I didn't know about all those other Baptist background people. I didn't know if you'd come out. But this, this is a great crowd. So we're glad you're here. All right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. If you have a pen, would you underline the word gathering, please? That's, a very, that's an important word. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to, together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us. As though the day of Christ had come. Now let me pause a moment. One of the problems the people at Thessalonica were having that Paul is addressing in this, his second letter to them, is that they had thought that the Lord had already come and the tribulation period was already beginning. And so Paul is trying to settle them down. He's saying, look, don't, don't let this trouble you. It hasn't happened yet concerning the coming of the Lord and concerning our being gathered together to him. You've not missed anything. It hasn't happened yet. So he's settling them down. And then he goes into this statement, verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Very interesting phrase. That term translated falling away. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. That's an interesting term. As you know, there's only one other person in the Bible that that term is used for. And that was Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. He was called the son of perdition. The Antichrist is called the son of perdition. We'll talk about more related to that in a moment. Verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining. Well, that's a very interesting phrase. Take a good look at it. 
And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So you know what is restraining and you understand that he who now restrains will be taken out of the way. So what does all that mean? We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Uh, so uh, let's, let's finish the text. Verse 8. And when the lawless one, another reference to the Antichrist by the way, and, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. By the way, let me pause a moment. Not all miracles are done by the power of God. The devil has a set of miracles he can do. And the Bible tells us that right here. As a matter of fact, one of the things that makes the Antichrist be received by so many is the miracles and signs and wonders that accompany his rise to power. People are deceived by them. So don't sit here today and think, you know, if a miracle takes place, it must be of God. That doesn't necessarily mean that that is the case. So the Bible says uh, in verse 10, And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, for what reason? Because they didn't receive the love of the truth. Because they didn't receive the gospel, in other words. For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe, notice this statement, the lie. That they should believe the lie. If you've ever wondered, will somebody be able to be saved after the rapture takes place? This question is being answered for us in this text. So take a look at that. We're going to talk about that briefly too. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, let me go back to what I was saying earlier. I lost my train of thought. We were going to build a sandwich. Remember that? When you build a sandwich, you, 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 you got to have that top bun right there, right? And that's kind of like point number one. We're not going to stay there very long, but we're going to give you that. And then you got that, that veggies, which I don't like tomatoes, so I'm not going to put that on my sandwich, but I'll do some lettuce. So we'll throw some lettuce. That's point two. We're going to stay there for just a little while. But I love the roast beef and the ham and maybe a little bit of turkey or something else thrown in the middle. So we're going to spend a little bit of time on point three. That's the main meat of the text. Then we're going to close out with a few pickles maybe uh, and maybe some provolone cheese. Uh, but uh, some of you are getting hungry now, aren't you? And then that bottom bun will be the fifth point. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on the first two or the last two. But we're going to try to uh, develop that middle point a little bit further as we go. So let's, uh, let's talk first of all, number one in your study sheet if you want to write it down. The departure from the truth in God or in Christ. The departure from the truth in Christ. First of all, the Bible says, you don't need to worry because before the coming of the Lord, before that, that era of time that the coming of the Lord refers to, there's going to be a falling away, the Bible says. Now that word, literally, in the Greek is the word apostasy. We would translate that directly or transliterate it apostasy. What does it mean? It, it literally is a falling away from the truth that is found in Christ. A departure from the truth. A departure. Now having said that, we would probably agree that we live in such a day. 
that, that there truly has been this departure from what is truth. It all started some years ago, but no doubt was emphasized by a culture that didn't believe that truth could exist to begin with. Would you agree with me? And so here we have this apostasy, this departure that takes place. Now the Bible warns us about this and tells us to try the spirits. 1 John chapter 4 and beginning in verse number 1. Let me read to you a little bit. We'll read the first four verses if you want to turn there. If you have your electronic Bibles, you may be there already. 1 John 4 and verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Now notice this phrase. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I love that verse of scripture. It's a wonderful passage. So the Bible's reminding us that the spirit of the Antichrist has been in the world for some time. After Jesus was, was here, when Jesus began his ministry, there was already a spirit of the Antichrist that developed. So there are some that do not believe there is actually a person known as the Antichrist, but rather it is this spirit and there are multiple by the way, the Bible does teach that there are multiple antichrists throughout the world. But we're focusing in on one particular, the son of perdition. He's called the lawless one. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But here we're reading that we should try the spirits. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, and this is probably a familiar text to many of us, we are reminded that in the last days there will be certain characteristics in our culture that we would probably say, identify with that phrase of falling away, a departure from the faith. In that passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it reads this way, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the form, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. So most of us would have to say, you know something, we've had this kind of a thing going on for a while in our culture, and we would consider all of this of falling away. Let me say this to you. We're sort of building a case here to establish a point with you, and that is this. There is not one single thing that, is, that needs to happen that hasn't already happened that would somehow prevent the coming of the Lord in the time of the rapture or the ushering in of the end times involving the Antichrist. Not one prophetic event that has to take place before all of that can simply unfold in an instant in an instant. The departure is already there. The falling away is already there. Number two, we're going to move on in our sandwich, all right? Number two, the deliverance of those in Christ. The deliverance of those in Christ. Now, there are many people who believe that the church will somehow go through a portion of the tribulation. 
I do not happen to be one of those. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I'm going to show you why in just a minute, a couple of things. First of all, Paul establishes in this text, and we already read it. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. That's a reference to the rapture. Our gathering together to him. And then he says there's going to first be a falling away. So before the rapture takes place, there's going to be this falling away. Now at first glance, it may look like, okay, the falling away happens, and then the son of perdition, the lawless one, the Antichrist, comes to power. But that's not what it says. Follow with me a little bit further. Verse, verse 5 again. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining I drew your attention to that when I was reading that. What does that mean? Now you know what is restraining. And then he goes on and there's this, this element of, of this restraint that is more specific. In the New King James, which I'm reading to you from, you will notice that the name he or the word he is capitalized. Most agree that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. But the term earlier, now you know what is restraining... It doesn't say who is restraining. It says what is restraining. And then it says he who restrains. So let me take a moment and deal with this. So the Bible says, verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Alright, so here's how it works. According to Paul and his writing, there is this restraint that is occurring. I happen to believe there's two parts to that. What is restraining and who is restraining. I'm going to come back to that. Then after that restraint is removed, then the lawless one will be revealed. Or the Antichrist will be revealed. Now, why do I happen to believe that that which is restraining and that which is the restraint, the what, I believe, is the church, the who is the Holy Spirit. And if you'll go back in time with me for a moment, you will, you will remember that the Holy Spirit of God is indeed God. Can I get an amen? amen. He is God. That means he is omnipresent. So I don't necessarily agree that the Holy Spirit is raptured out, but... We do know this from the study of the Holy Spirit, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We know that he works in different ways, and we know that the way he is working right now, ever since the day of Pentecost, when he came upon the church and anointed the church, he works through his people who make up the body of Christ, the church. So that which restrains is the church, and he who restrains is the Holy Spirit. And that must be removed. The church and the way he currently works has to be removed. Now, as I was studying this, I asked the Holy Spirit. I said, Lord, show me something here in the scriptures that proves this point. And I, I believe he took me there. I think he took me way back into the book of Genesis at the time when God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember the story? In Genesis chapter 19, it is recorded. And we have there an interesting passage of Scripture that um, in verse 22, it talks about where, where God said to, uh, to Lot, he, he said, look, he said, I can't do anything until you have come out of the way. Do you remember that? I can't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah until you have come out of the way. For God to say, I can't do anything until you do this, 
That's an interesting point. May I say it to you another way? That in that text, God was saying this, I am restraining my judgment until I remove you and your family to a safe place and then my judgment will come. Now I believe that's the way God works with his people. I don't think the judgment of the tribulation period is falling on the church. And the church acts as a restrainer. A restrainer of what? Of the lawlessness in the world that we live in. You ever felt like a little bit like as a, as a Christian that you're sort of like a salmon swimming upstream all the time? You ever just get a little frustrated, a little aggravated, and you feel like, my goodness, why can't people see this? Why, why is our world seemingly going in the direction that it's going in? Did you know it would be a whole lot worse without you in the world? It'd be a whole lot worse without God's people letting God live through them because you are a restraint of the lawlessness that the world is trying to develop. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of people who want to practice lawlessness want you out of the way. They'll be quite happy if you shut up. You don't say anything. Somehow they've got a lot of Christians to believe that they shouldn't speak up about matters concerning the world that we live in. I'm telling you, let your light shine and influence and do some restraining. Amen? The Bible says that's what you are. Now the day will come when that restraint is removed, when we are raptured out. And man, what a, what a world of havoc and problems it will be. When that which restrains and he who restrains is removed out of the way. Then we have, number three, the main meat of the text, if you will. The deceiver who pretends to be Christ. Let's talk about this one known as the deceiver. We mentioned earlier the term son of perdition. He's the man of sin, the Bible says. Did you know, it, actually, uh, A.W. Pink says there are 30 names given to the Antichrist. Now, some may overlap. Jimmy DeYoung says there's only 27. I won't argue with either one of them. I haven't counted all of them. But, but I'll tell you that there's a whole lot of names given to him. And so in this text, I find it interesting that the son of perdition refers to the Antichrist. But the only other person that it, it refers to in the scriptures would be Judas. I know this according to the scriptures that Satan did something with Judas that he appears to do nowhere else, anywhere in the Bible, except for possibly the Antichrist also. Only two men that this, is in, that this involves, and that is, he empowers them and indwells them. The Bible actually says Satan entered into Judas. Now, there are many people who believe that Judas is somehow uh, brought back for the purpose of the Antichrist. I won't, won't get into reincarnation and all that stuff with you. I'll just simply say this, that he doesn't need Judas to also indwell another. And, and I happen to believe it will be somebody else, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. No, I'm not going to name him. I don't know his name. I don't think anybody does. But, but I can tell you that as we talk about this, you'll, you'll uh, see more about uh, where he, he may be coming from. Let's do this. Uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 6. Let's look over there. Revelation chapter 6. Most of you who uh, have studied the book of Revelation know that this is, if you will, the beginning of the tribulation period. We're beginning to see these uh, horsemen of the apocalypse. In verse number 1 of Revelation chapter 6, we find a white horse. 
Some have actually thought that because this is a white horse, that somehow this is an appearance of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting to me that even some of God's people, when they read the word, they tend to think that. Because that is exactly what this person wants you to believe. But it is not the Christ, it is the Antichrist who comes to power. So as we read this text, look at it with me. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now let's establish this, and this, uh, I'm going to get... I'm going to get real relevant with you in just a minute, okay? Something that just happened this week. But, but bear with me for a moment as I do this because I want to establish a few, a few thoughts with you. One of those is, notice what he does. He comes on the scene. He rides a horse that makes him look like he's the Messiah. When Jesus returns in Revelation 19, he's on a white horse. So people think this is the Messiah. And he comes to conquer Make no mistake about it that he will come to somehow use war to bring peace. Now that becomes significant. Okay? So let's, let's unfold it a little bit further. Let's skip over to Revelation 13. Chapter 13. Look there with me. We find more on this person. The Antichrist. Also known as the beast in this text. There are two that are referred to as the beast. There's the Antichrist and the false prophet. And this is uh, uh, something that we need to clarify. So look at, at verse 1, Revelation 13. If you're there, say, I'm there. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Now, most theologians believe when it comes to Bible prophecy, and you see the word sea, it is a reference to the Gentile nations. When you see the term land or earth, it is a reference to Israel. So if the Antichrist is coming up out of the sea, then the Antichrist is going to be a Gentile, not a Jew. You don't have to amen it for it to be right, I'm just saying. <laughs> So I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns and on his horns ten crowns and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like, and then he goes on describing, then the Bible says the dragon gave him his power, his throne and great authority. Now if you're wondering who the dragon is that gives the Antichrist all of his power and his position of authority, go back to chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12, and uh, look with me in verse 7. Revelation 12 and verse 7, say, I'm there. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, and they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon, which was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So make no mistake about it that the Antichrist receives his power from the devil himself. Right? Okay. So now this I find interesting. You may be wondering, and we'll, we'll answer this question uh, a little bit further as we go. But the question is, if he's a Gentile, 
how in the world would Israel receive him as the Messiah? Well, first of all, we're going to get to that in more detail concerning the delusion that we read about earlier. But also the false prophet. Now the false prophet, by the way, the devil has a counterfeit for everything God has. Here we are studying the counterfeit Christ. The false prophet is the counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. Just as the Holy Spirit draws emphasis to who Jesus is, the false prophet brings about all sorts of activity and, and emphasis on who the Antichrist is, causing people to believe in him. And uh, here's an interesting thing. He's called another beast, the, the uh, false prophet is, verse 11, same chapter, Revelation 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. So while the Antichrist is a Gentile, the false prophet is a Jew. Now that's going to aid in his deception of the Jewish people. There's a lot more to this story. Look at verse 5. Revelation 13, verse 5. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, the, the false prophet comes on the scene, verse 11. We, we read that a moment ago. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> He performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Now we know that he has a head wound, and it is perceived that he has died and returned to life. It is a counterfeit of the resurrection. So he goes on. Look with me. He was granted this power. Uh, he, he asked them to worship the image. And then verse 16. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, I find this interesting because while it can be said that this is the number of the beast, meaning the Antichrist, it is not the Antichrist who promotes that number. It's the false prophet. It's the false prophet who says, if you're going to conduct any business, if you're going to have any financial dealings, you've got to have this number made available to you. Now, what is this number becomes a valid question. People have talked about it for some years. Those who have studied out numbers and each name having a number uh, have concluded various things. I want to give you what I think is probably the most simplistic. There are two thoughts revolving around this that I've come across. One of them is that some say this is actually the number of Nero, the emperor of Rome the Caesar, if you will, that it fits him. I say to you that if that is true, it is more in the sense that it is the number of the type 
of leader the Antichrist is. Keep in mind that Nero hated and persecuted the Christians. And he was the head of Rome. Why is that significant? Because the Antichrist, according to the scriptures, will rule from the city on seven mountains. What is the city on seven mountains? The city on seven hills is the term used to describe Rome. So we know that Rome and what we typically call the revived Roman Empire will play a part in the ascension of this man to his leadership position. Now before I go any farther, let me get back to the numbers, 666. If indeed that is the case, that it is a, a symbol of Nero, then we're talking about a Roman emperor. We're talking about a Roman ruler. Just keep that in mind, okay? Now, uh, one of the, one of the, the best uh, definitions I've heard about this came from a study of what we typically would call numerology. I'm not big into numerology. Maybe some of you are. I've had people in my church throughout the years who come to me with all kinds of things they've found. And I'm intrigued by what they have found, but I don't spend my time doing a lot of study in it. There are some things that are very basic for us. For instance, the number seven. Most of us would agree we understand the number seven represents perfection. We know that. We see that throughout the scripture. We also would say the number three, as believed by most, is a divine number in that it refers to several things pertaining to God. For instance, the Trinity, the number three. For instance, how many days Jesus stayed in the tomb? Three days, three nights, and then rose from the dead. So there's a connection with the number three. There's a connection when it comes to perfection and other numbers. We know that. Well, what about the number six? The number six is the number of man. Could it be that what the scripture is saying is the number six is the number of man, not necessarily the number of a specific man? It, man was created on the sixth day. He is one less than perfect. So by tripling the number six, putting them together, making three of them, it's entirely possible that the number indicates this. A man who is pretending to be God. And that may be all that that number actually means. So having said that, let me come back to that is consistent with what we know about the Antichrist. He presents himself as though he is God. So the question in our minds is, where does this guy come from? How can this guy come to power? I find it interesting that this, this empire, if you will, is both, bear with me a moment now, is both he is a political leader and he is a religious leader. In the day and age that you and I live in, we can, we can make several assumptions concerning this. Let me give you a couple of entities that I think the Antichrist could come through. One of them, for many years, has been taught. You've probably heard it before. I don't say this to offend anybody here that may come from that background, or maybe you have relatives in that. And I'm asking you to bear with me just a moment. But uh, the, the, the first and foremost religious government official that tends to come to, to the light is the Pope. And people talk about this. Martin Luther believed with all his heart that the Pope would be the Antichrist. Not necessarily the one who's serving right now, but if you look at his position where he is a global leader, he's a religious leader, and he is a political leader. 
You say, How, what do you mean by a political leader? The Vatican is its own country. A lot of people don't realize that. It's actually the smallest country in the world. And statistics show that it is an independent city-state that consists of 109 acres. And whether you know it or not, it is a monarchy run solely by the Pope. So does he fit that position? Politically, he tends to be what? A peacemaker. He remains neutral on everything. Well, what about the apostasy? Make no mistake about it that while I, I, do, not, I do not believe that they would deny, uh, at least not in the world that you and I live in, that Jesus is the Savior. They just don't rely on Jesus as the Savior because their teaching has to do with works-based salvation. For instance, many of you that may have been involved in Catholicism throughout your past and in your past, you've come from a background that taught you could somehow purchase the forgiveness of sin and purchase the favor of God. But we know that can't be done. We know that you're saved only by grace. Amen. One of the terms the Catholic Church does not use that is essential to us today is the phrase or the term born again. You must be born again in order to see the kingdom of heaven. And so I say to you today, ladies and gentlemen, without any attempt to offend anyone, simply put, the Roman Catholic Church uh, and its position in Rome does fit a possible avenue that the Antichrist can come through. That is possible. However, there's another entity that I think is even a greater possibility. And I'm not a betting man. I don't bet on anything. I, uh, I've learned years ago that, you know, that's something you really shouldn't do as a Christian. And we can talk about that. Uh, I played golf with some people not long ago. and They wanted to bet on, on something. I don't remember what it was. I said, no. I said, I'll give you the money, but I'm not betting. It was a good cause. They wanted to give the money to you. I'll give you the money. I'm just not going to bet. And, and so the idea, if I was a betting man, I'd bet on this one I'm about to tell you about rather than the other. Islam. Now let me say why. Islam. Some of you have done the study and some of you are aware that Islam today, particularly the Shiites are looking for someone known as the 12th Imam. Now the word Imam, I-M-A-M, -M, is a word that simply refers to an Islamic religious leader. There have been 11 of them, primary leaders of Islam. There was a 12th one born, they say, somewhere around 868 AD. And he went into hiding. They believe that God gave the command for them to hide this man, the 12th Imam, and that he has somehow been blessed with longevity of life, and they are waiting on him to appear. Did you know that the Islamic teaching on eschatology is almost as well-defined as Christian eschatology? And by that word eschatology, we're talking about the doctrine of the last days. They have down in their teachings this 12th Imam who appears on the scene of a world that is in chaos, follow in me a moment, a world that is in chaos that is in need of someone who will bring order and peace to the world. And they believe that the 12th Imam will return in time to do that and establish what they call a global caliphate. 
Having said that, let's back up a minute and talk about this. The 12th Imam. What exactly do they believe? Well, uh, the uh, former president of Iran, Mohammad Aminajab, am I saying that right? Aminajad, whatever his name is. <laughs> he was very outspoken about this, this whole thing. By the way, the full name of the country uh, of Iran is the Islamic Republic of Iran. They make no bones about using it. Now, they believe this. Now, I want you to understand me. If you believe something and, and you truly believe it, should it not somehow influence your policies? It does. It influences their policies. So, Iran believes that they can help expedite the appearance of the 12th Imam by making the world chaotic. He said those very things. How do they do that? There are two pressure points that they can press on that causes it. Are you listening to me? Number one, you wipe out Israel, the little Satan. Number two, you destroy the United States, who they call the great Satan. If you'll do those things, then the world becomes chaotic and the 12th Imam will appear. But they go further than this. They even go to the point of believing that the development of nuclear arms are for the purpose of the use of the conqueror we read about in Revelation chapter 6. When the 12th imam appears in a world that is chaotic, what will he use to bring the world into subjection and make it a global caliphate? Nuclear weapons. Now I know some of you right now are thinking, my pastor has gone nuts. <laughs> but can I ask you to do something with me for a moment? This week, I'm not talking about years ago. This week, on the 25th of July, our news brought out that an Iranian ship was taunting a U.S. destroyer. Do you remember seeing that on the news, some of you? came within, I understand, one article I read, 1,000 feet. The U.S. destroyer had to fire shots, warning shots, to keep them away. One report I read said they, were, they had their, their, their uh, arms manned and they were speeding toward the U.S. destroyer. One of the United States officials made this statement. Their action was provocative. Provocative. On the 27th of July, just a couple days later, Iran launched a rocket able to carry a 550-pound satellite into space. Now, while they're using that saying, it's a satellite-carrying rocket, the technology is also needed to launch ballistic missiles. When asked about the Iranian missile test, China's UN ambassador, and I'll never pronounce his name right, so forgive me, Li Ju, the current president of the UN Security Council, said it was not within the scope of the 2015 nuclear agreement between Iran and world powers. So I ask you, why would a nation do what it does? Why would it 
support some of the things it supports with Russia and with North Korea? Why would Iran do any of this? Well, I'm telling you why. Because they believe with all their heart that to cause world chaos, they will help usher in the 12th imam. And the 12th imam will come to power and bring peace through military might and establish a worldwide caliphate. You say, this doesn't make much sense because, and there may be a number of things that you uh, begin to cite, would Israel ever receive a Muslim uh, leader such as the imam? We'll talk about that in a second. But I know that that question looms. Before I do that, let me share with you one other thought and, uh, uh, or a couple of thoughts about this. Remember, this is our meat portion of the text, okay? Daniel chapter 11 and verse 37. Daniel 7 and Daniel chapter 11 are chapters which deal with the Antichrist from the Old Testament. There's an interesting phrase here that has been interpreted various ways. Let me read it to you. Daniel 11 and verse 37. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Now the question looms as to what exactly does it mean when it says he will not regard the desire of women. The desire of women. For many years that passage has been taught as though he will not be married. Thus, he will appear as though, keep in mind, Jesus was never married. But he will appear as though uh, he, he has no spouse. And some have taught it as, as even saying that the Antichrist will be homosexual. That he'll have no desire toward women. But others have studied the text and said, no, it means something different. Do you remember Solomon? Remember when Solomon was serving God and living out his reign as king and he began to marry women who had preference to other gods? Do you remember what he did? He began then to allow them to worship the other gods. He gave in to the desire of his wives. Some have said this is a man who will not give in to what others try to say concerning who they want to worship. You will worship him. And only him. Others have said it is a total disregard. I find this interesting. When I, when I read this, I thought, wow. Because it fits so into Islam. It is a total disregard for women. And what the Bible is saying is this man who comes to power will have a total disregard. Not only for the true and living God but for all women. Now, if that doesn't fit, ladies and gentlemen, I, I don't know what does. Okay, so here's a question for you, okay? And I ask this question. Well, what about Rome? How does Rome fit into that? How does Rome end up being a part of the ruling seat? Well, maybe it has to do with the European um, economic community. Uh, maybe it has to do with its, its fracturing since the Brexit uh, some now in, in, in the global news, they're trying to develop the, the summits that have already been discussing and continue to discuss world financial committees. 
which will help bring about a stabilization of the world's economy. And, and without, without going into much detail about that, perhaps there is this reworking of the revived Roman Empire that's going to take place. But it still doesn't establish why Rome, particularly if this is a leader that comes up as the 12th Imam, who is also known as the Mahdi. Now the word Mahdi is a term that literally refers to the Messiah. So they call the 12th Imam the Mahdi the Messiah. One of the writers of the Hadith, the report of the Muslims that they use there, they use for their guidance and their direction in their life, he has written two of the four books which make up the Hadith. His name is uh, Sheikh Tusi. He was born around 995 AD. This was a long time ago. Uh, and, and he wrote a couple of the books that are influential. In his writings, he has said, that the Mahdi's mother, the 12th Imam's mother, I keep this, I hope you're focusing with me. I know some of you are tired. It was very difficult on you to get out of the bed this morning with all that rain. So, uh, so focus with me. He, he wrote and said, the Mahdi's mother, her name was, let me, let me see if I can read this to you, Malika. She's the daughter of Yahshua, son of the Caesar of Rome. If, that, if he is accurate, what he is saying and what he is teaching is this. That the Mahdi, the 12th Imam, this one that they will look to, to be their Savior and their Messiah, he is the grandson of Caesar himself. So where better to, to run the nation or the world from than Rome? If he is indeed claiming that heritage then he would serve from the city on seven hills, just like the book of Revelation talks about. So I happen to believe that that is more likely than most of what we have been speaking of in any of the others. And so for whatever that's worth. So let's jump into the provolone part of the sandwich, all right? Number four, the delusion of those rejecting Christ. The delusion of those rejecting Christ. Now we read earlier that God was going to send strong delusion. And it was going to be on those that did not receive the truth. That they might be saved. So then, what the Bible is telling us is there is this delusion that God sends in 2 Thessalonians. And they will believe the lie. Well what exactly is the lie? There is no greater lie than to say there is no God. Would you agree? And no greater lie than to say that Jesus is not God, that he is not the Son of God, that he is not the Savior. So the Bible is telling us that God will allow this delusion to be put out there on anyone who has rejected Christ and they will not believe the truth. They will believe a lie. It, it may be difficult for us to try to perceive how a Muslim leader may come up through the ranks and become the world leader and accepted even by Israel. But the Bible says it's because of the delusion that will be sent that they will. And they will have this pseudo peace for a time. And so we have this in the scriptures that tell us that they will believe a lie. And then last of all, let me close with the destiny of those who are without Christ. The destiny of those who are without Christ. The Bible says they'll be condemned who do not believe the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. Condemned. Make no mistake about it that heaven is real and so is the lake of fire. 
And the Bible tells us if you're in Christ Jesus, that is if you have accepted the Lord Jesus as your Savior, in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We read of the demise of the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 19. I wish I could read all of the text to you, but I'll take time and read a portion, beginning in verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Verse 16. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Skipping down to verse 19. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So before Jesus sets up the millennial reign, before that happens, he takes and judges the Antichrist and the false prophet and they're thrown into the lake of fire. So where does this leave us? You say, Pastor, we're supposed to be focused on the Christ, not the Antichrist. I agree. But I happen to believe that the Bible tells us that by understanding some of the end times and understanding what's going to happen, that it ought to change the way we live today. It ought to change our focus. It ought to change what we do in our life. 2 Peter chapter 3, I'll close with this reading. 2 Peter 3 and verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I'm telling you, given the events that we are living in and all the things that are happening, we are simply not far away at all from all of that. I mean, we're an instant from the rapture. And so I want to encourage you, live as though you know that. Would you do that? Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today and we thank you, Lord, for the study you've given us. I pray, God, that you'd help us to be able to decipher and go through in our minds and in our hearts, Lord, the reading of your word and the teaching of your word. And I pray the Holy Spirit will have have taught us and guide us, Lord, continue as we go back over our notes and look at passages. And Father, we ask that you bless us and help us, Lord, to live as though we know you are coming at any minute. Lord, bless your people here today. I pray if there's one that is not in a relationship with you, that today they'd make that decision, Lord, that they'd come to trust you as their personal Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, the invitation's open. 
If you'd like to come and pray and just return back to your seat, you do that. We're not going to bother you. We'll just let you pray. But if you're here today and you'd like to find out more about how you can be saved, how you can be born again, we'd love the opportunity to take the Bible and show you. And you let us know when you come that you'd like more information on that. I'll ask our teachers and our deacons if they would be prepared to come and pray with people. May God bless you. Would you stand with me, please, all who are able?